0: 6349 or slash Portland. On this episode of the podcast, we are honored to welcome Representative elect Dr. Lisa Reynolds, who was my opponent in the House District 36 race. Uh, She won, I lost. So, uh, Lisa, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you so much for having me, James and Nick. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah. So, usually just start out, why don't you give us just kind of a two minute bio of who you are, how you got here, what made you run for office?
1: Yeah. Great. Thank you. So, um, as, as you mentioned, James, I am a physician. I'm actually a pediatrician and I've been in practice for over 20 years and I love it. It's really rewarding work, uh, kind of helping shepherd babies into toddlerhood, into adolescence and really helping families figure out, you know, how to, how to raise the child to become their full potential, but I've been feeling for years that I wanted to do more for these families than what I could accomplish in the exam room. And I had been spending some time in Salem doing advocacy work, uh, both on child health, but but more so on gun violence prevention work. And spending a lot of time in Salem, talking to legislators, testifying in front of committees, I started thinking, hey, I think I could do this too. And uh, when the seat in House District 36 became open, I decided to run for it. So throwing my hat in the ring um, about a year ago. Uh, And I should also mention I did um, go through the training with Emerge Oregon, uh, which is a a training program for Democratic women who are thinking about running for office. And that was also really helpful and kind of gave me some insight as to what it would involve. So here I am.
2: So I've got to say, as a pediatrician, your, your typical clients throw temper tantrums, are often complaining about things when nothing's really wrong. Uh, there's probably a lot of screaming going on. So I have to say that prepares you perfectly for the Oregon State Legislature.
1: I think so, yes. I've had other people make that analogy too.
0: <laughs> so you had a pretty contested primary. There were four people running, uh, four Democrats running plus me, but I was running unopposed on the Republican side. I used to say if I – threw my name in on the Democrat side, if there were five of us running, I would have placed fourth in that race. So um, I don't know, what are your thoughts running just a super contested primary? And were you able to kind of bring those people, all of the coalitions back together afterwards? How did that work?
1: Well, yes, it was a very contested primary. And I will say that I was a long shot I had a lot of people, including former governor of Oregon, look me in the eye and say, there is no way you could win, Lisa. You can't win this race. I've had people, I had people who thought I should drop out after a series of things didn't go my way. But, you know, I persevered and I, and I stuck it out, but I was, you know, received very, very few, um, uh endorsements. I had absolutely no institutional endorsements behind me and very few personal endorsements. And my main opponent was endorsed by a U.S. senator, a former Oregon governor, the Attorney General of Oregon, uh, and a whole slew of legislators. So it was it was pretty dark times at times. But I felt that my message was really powerful. I had an incredible grassroots organization. Most of my mom's man action friends were um knocking doors with me when we could do that. And then when we had to switch to, to phone calls, we, we were able to make a lot of phone calls. And then, of course, when COVID happened, um, You know my role as a physician and my role as a leader on this topic, writing missives two or three times a week and posting them, writing letters to the governor and press releases on what we should be doing differently. I think that showed what leadership looked like, and I think that certainly contributed to my victory. But I really chalk it up to the grassroots. Again, I, we we knocked six thousand doors before we had to stop. We wow. made fourteen thousand phone calls. We hand wrote eight thousand postcards. I mean, I have an. Amazing group of people, volunteers behind me, and I'm really, really proud of the primary race that we ran.
0: I remember back then, back before we could, when we could knock doors, I was able to get my voters' pamphlet statement done through, uh, through the petition. So I that was 200 signatures, which means I probably knocked 500 doors, and so that thousands that you knocked was super incredible. The other thing I was going to say is that I remember back then, as I was preparing all of my like. Zingers for for Lori Wimmert. because <laughs> um, she, like you said, she got all the endorsements. U.S. Senator, all of the uh, all of the big powerful organizations in Oregon had endorsed her, and so um, that was. And then I like to be completely honest, and I think I probably told you this in in private. Is you were probably my favorite of the four that were running. And I was like, oh, well, Lisa's going to be the hardest to throw things at, uh, but she'll also probably be the best legislator. So uh, knowing so, knowing my... In the <laughs>
2: unlikely event that HD 36 did not go to the Republican candidate, uh, D plus 60 district or whatever.
0: Yeah. So I, I was happy when I saw you you win, even Thank though you. it made my, you, James. Yeah. my race a little bit tougher. Um, I couldn't play the union card because Lori was the union person. Uh, anyway. So I'm glad I'm glad you won. And I I think you'll be a much better legislator than the other three who you were running against.
1: Well, thank you. I was certainly motivated by that too. I felt I was needed in Salem and it it was incredibly motivating to to feel that I was the right person to be there. And then, as I mentioned, had my great grassroots organization.
2: So I can I ask just out of curiosity, if if you had all of this institutional heft uh, working to help somebody else get elected, somebody whom I'm sure you don't Feel was unqualified. Somebody just who maybe had different priorities than you, and was going to take action in a different way, and had different experiences than you. Um, What you know? What do you think it's going to be like now? Going back to to work with these folks, and you know, everybody's everybody's got to go along to get along and get bills passed and everything like that. What What are you most looking forward to as uh, the session starts?
1: Well, I will say that I have mended fences, uh, certainly with the people I ran against in the primary. Lori Wimmer and I text each other, Hmm. um, and uh, we were friends before this race and we remain friends and i'm sure we'll be working together on issues around education which is her 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 role as a as a lobbyist for the Oregon Education Association. So i'm not concerned at all about about moving forward and working together on that front.
0: Okay. Cool. One of the other things that i was curious about is do you have any like priorities or things you'd like to see in Salem that happen in the next uh like the next session?
1: Obviously this is going to be a very challenging session. Both with the pandemic, which is basically what I seem to be thinking about twenty four seven these days, but also the budget shortfall as a as a consequence of the pandemic, as well as the recovery from the wildfires. And I think there's some opportunities here to do things better. I mean, both the wildfires and the pandemic have unearthed the inequity uh in, in Oregon, um, much more than I think we were willing to look at. And of course the the, the George Floyd murder and the subsequent unrest in downtown. So I do think that whatever we do, we need to, to do it with a, with an eye towards helping those that have been left behind in Oregon. The things that I'm particularly passionate about as a pediatrician is, um, is early childhood. Um, and I think that we can make Oregon kind of I, I say like the best place to be born in. Uh, my son <laughs> thought that sounded a little highfalutin. But uh, I do think um, we can provide better support for families, you know, through pregnancy and through those first – you know, really, we talk about the first 2,000 days of life, which is the first five years of life, so I've been um, thinking and talking and researching a lot about what that looks like. A lot of it's already being thought about and written about um, in Oregon, and that's where I really want to place a lot of energy. Uh, my passion's also on gun violence prevention, so issues around safe gun storage, as well as um, closing a Charleston loophole, which allows background checks to be completed um, before someone can uh, get their hands on a on a purchased gun. Um And then I'm very concerned about, uh, the joblessness, which is only going to get worse with the, with the coming freeze, which I think will be extended during this, um, enormous uptick in COVID. And I do think it's necessary to do this freeze. But, you know, I think a lot of these, a lot of the restaurants we've already seen go under, we're just going to see a lot more of that. So, so I, I guess I'd say jobs, early childhood, gun violence prevention.
0: So I think it's worth pointing out that we're recording this on Tuesday, the 17th, the statewide of November, (laughs) the statewide freeze begins tomorrow. So that's a very hot topic right now
2: for the state, at least I think four for here, us in Multnomah County. And I should say, I and my wife was very concerned about this. We are outside right now. We are decently far apart and have a lot of fresh air. Uh, and James and I are drinking wine, so that kills germs, right? I'm sure that <laughs> minimizes the the COVID spread, absolutely. But um, so I I, I joke, but it, I I do feel that it's wonderful that somebody with your background as a pediatrician, as a subject matter expert in the area of medicine, has just won election in this time of of COVID when we all. Absolutely need to listen to more medical professionals in the world. Um, I'd be curious for uh, you said you feel that the freeze is necessary. What what are some of the other steps that either you can take as a legislator if we see continue to see similar numbers uh, when you take office in January? And what are some things that the, the James and I as any listeners of our podcast private citizens should be doing that's currently not mandated and not being discussed as any part of uh, a law?
1: Well, one thing that's really important, it doesn't exactly answer the question you asked, is Oregon is among the lowest states in the union for testing. Hmm. We have, we have inadequate numbers of tests. It's very hard to get a COVID test. I, I, and I have been telling people this since March.
0: Well, you know what Trump said, more testing means more cases. So maybe that's uh, maybe that's we're part of the... Of here, yeah.
1: Right, right. Yeah. No, I, I almost wish that were true, but it's not. Um, or less testing would mean less cases, right? right? Just so stop testing. It goes just away. Just stop testing, just like we stop counting at a certain point. Um, but uh, no, it's it's a real problem because um, if you're not able to adequately do contact tracing, for example, by testing all the people who are in contact with someone who who has COVID. If you're not able, for people just to be able to say, hey, I I might go see my grandma. Can I get tested first? That's just not available in Oregon. I'm not actually saying that's necessarily the right thing to do, but um, it's very, very hard to get a test in Oregon. And it's inexplicable to me. I've asked and I've asked and I've asked and I haven't received a great answer. I will say in early October, the Oregon Health Authority announced we will be, we are on track in the next few weeks to be able to do 60 to 80,000 tests a, a week. We're still doing about 30. Huh. So we test about 1.5 to 1.6 people per thousand per day. And it should be closer to, it should be five or six fold that.
2: Is, is that a lack of tests? Like, is that a lack of like, Working things into the pipeline or is that OHA just not like having the capacity to they, they've got the tests; They just don't have the ability to process them and actually get them done.
1: They're saying they don't have the tests. Okay. However, um, you know, six weeks ago they said tests were literally on their way. So hmm. it's it's been frustrating. Yeah. Um, it's been very frustrating.
0: I do another podcast with Alan Alley, and former gubernatorial candidate, and that's something that he's been harping on for months: is the lack of testing in Oregon. And so his his point is, if we do antibody testing, we can figure out how far the disease has spread and more accurately target it. And that's something that hasn't been hasn't happened in the country, much less in Oregon. Uh,
1: well, antibody testing has not been proven to mean anything. So I wouldn't I wouldn't advocate for antibody testing. We need to be testing for presence of nucleic acid of the um of the actual virus to see if mm-hmm. you are um if you are carrying the virus or doing what's called a um antigen test, which is a, a test if you are currently infectious. I think antibody testing is, is just very investigational right now. I don't think it's something that should be part of a public health response to COVID.
0: I think it, it definitely has different goals. Like, yeah, yeah you, you wouldn't be able – antibody tests wouldn't be able to tell – wouldn't be able to contact trace, wouldn't be able to stop the disease. But it might might tell how far it's spread, which – yeah, I mean, maybe it's, that's more investigational. I, I see what you're saying.
2: So uh, I'd be curious to to get to a, a little bit more of a 30,000-foot view. Um You've won election as as the representative elect for here for HD 36, covering a lot of downtown Portland. Uh, you're obviously a Democrat and you're sitting here with us on a podcast that gets maybe <laughs> six or 800 listens. We don't have any kind of reach at all. So you're clearly not that rational.
1: <laughs> what uh,
2: what are you doing on a podcast called Rational Republican? And, uh, you know, what do you what do you kind of envision as a role for, you know, any kind of bipartisanship in a state where you could I mean, you could rule in, in an only blue fashion if you so chose?
1: Yeah, thanks. Great question. Well, first of all, I will say that, you know, from the moment I met James, which ended up being July, I think because of Was COVID, we, yeah. we had talked about meeting in March and then, you know, all heck broke loose. <laughs> um, you know, I told him, thank you for running. I think I think every House and Senate election should be contested. I think there should be, you know, real races where people are talking about uh the, the issues. Um and uh I I used to live in rural Oregon. I lived in I lived in Gaston for ten years when my kids were young. Um and I do really believe I want Oregon to be a better state for every single Oregonian, no matter where they live. And I do think that the the extreme divisiveness is problematic. Um, obviously, we haven't gotten much done in the Oregon legislature for a variety of reasons. And if there's ways that we can better Reach across the aisle, and if that means keeping. You know, if we can keep Republicans in the room, I think that's important. But there's also some lines where you know we can't we can't cross just to just to uh, pander, so to speak. So it's a tough situation. It's you know certainly mirrored what we're seeing in the rest of the country. Um, Oregon's no different, unfortunately. Even though I like to think we're exceptional, um, but I certainly you know as a as a pediatrician, no matter what room I walk into, you know a family's in there, and I have to make a connection pretty quickly. Mm. And granted, that's a little bit easier we certainly have a very strong shared goal of you know figuring out what's going on with the child or making sure that you know growth and development are on track but um i you know i i treat everyone as if they were my patient and we need to make a connection and find common ground so i'm looking forward to to figuring out a way to do that it's going to be a little bit trickier in a um in a remote you know i think a lot of things will be remote so that is going to be more tricky but yeah i i would love to see a um a rational Republican party in Oregon.
0: <laughs> hey, that makes three of us. So living as a Republican, living in downtown Portland, I have had to deal with Democrats, talk to Democrats, be friends, Democrats, because that's pretty much all there is out here. Uh, the registration in this district, of course, I'm sure you know, is close to six to one, six Democrats for every Republican. So you can just walk outside my door and assume that everyone you talk to is, is a Democrat and you're going to be right, you know, of the time, 85. Um, so this is something that I've thought about a lot of how to bridge this gap. And for me personally, I feel like it's, you just go through some of the conflict resolution steps of, you know, it's not me versus you, it's us versus the problem. And just not to give you advice, but just (laughs) my experience of just, and, and, the giving the benefit of the doubt and assuming positive intent. And it's so easy to just kind of get stuck in your partisan bubble and to assume that the other side's the enemy. And it, I I do this with governor Brown sometimes, (laughs) but (laughs) just, it's easy to just sling mud. Uh, but this, with this, uh, with this freeze, I think is an interesting example because I'm very frustrated with the freeze and with the shutdown. And, just as a small business owner, I know how this is going to affect my bottom line. And fortunately, we're a an essential business, and so we're going to keep running. But I can just imagine being a restaurant owner and knowing that you're going to have to shut down for four weeks and there's no assistance coming at the federal or the state level and just being frustrated. I, I was supposed to get married on March 29th two weeks mm. after the shutdown started. So planning a wedding for almost a year and then having to cancel it two weeks out. And I was mad and there's nobody to be mad at. It was one of the most frustrating things that I've experienced was be- having just so much anger in me, but no, no way, no outlet. There was, there was no one at fault. It was, it was a pandemic. It was COVID. So it just, uh, It's frustrated me, but at the same time, it's been kind of a, I've been trying to dial it back and say, okay, Governor Brown is trying to protect us, assuming the positive intent at the governor level, and then working with that. There are so many other issues, like for the small businesses, the restaurant owners that I think need to be addressed in a better way. But going to, obviously, I don't have her phone number, but like going, if I were to Talk to her rather than just slinging mud and saying I'm I'm going to have everybody and their sister over for Thanksgiving dinner, hmm. uh, which some of our Tootie Smith, Tootie, right? some, yeah, Tootie yeah. Smith, I'm, I'm yeah, she's over there with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, Tootie. If you're listening and want to come on the podcast, we would love to hear your rebuttal, but for Thanksgiving, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but just I'm I'm getting about on a soapbox here, but. Two rather this on a podcast getting on a soapbox rather than rather than just slinging mud to say governor brown i understand what you're trying to do i understand that this is probably necessary however there are these things that i believe need to be addressed and have not been addressed properly another one is the achievement gap in schools the low income and children of color are much benefit much more from being from having in-person schools and not having in-person schools is going to widen that gap substantially. And that's something I haven't heard a lot about. Um,
1: Oh, I mean, I will tell you, and you know, certainly I'm the pediatric world is talking about this a ton. And, um, and, you know, the, the point's a little moot in Oregon right now, but there was certainly a move towards liberalizing some of the standards for, you know, or the benchmarks we had to reach before getting kids back in school. And I will tell you, as someone who, you know, certainly really agreed we needed to close schools in the spring and even realized we weren't quite ready to open schools in the fall, I am absolutely seeing the fallout. The, the horrifying fallout of kids not being in schools. It's the achievement gap for sure. It's, um, and, and the mental illness, it's, it's way worse than I thought it was going to be. The anxiety and depression I'm seeing, especially among teenagers and, and some college kids has, it's just heartbreaking. And so, you know, the European model has been don't open the bars and restaurants, but open the schools. And I, I think that's almost the conversation we need to be having with financial support for the restaurant and bars. We want them. Yes. No, absolutely. And, 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 you know, the, the U.S. House has talked about that. But as you know, it's, it's dead on arrival in Mitch McConnell's desk. So, um, I will say that we need to really rethink our priorities as, as a country. And I think there's been this funny thing. Like, is it's, we either have to decide on public health or the economy. But dudes, you know, if, if we have a, a public that's sick, that's sick for 40 days. We have these long haulers that are sick for three weeks that, you know, a lot of people, once they've recovered from COVID, they've lost their job. 40% of those people are, haven't been going back to work because of the illness. Um, that's not good for the economy, let alone the fact like I am someone who probably went, ate in a restaurant twice a week before COVID. Mm-hmm. I'm not going inside a restaurant for a long, long time. So the restaurants obviously are struggling even without the shutdown. We need, and until we, really get past covid the restaurants don't have a chance of survival so it, it's not an either or it's it really is that the public health is economic health
2: well and i, and I think that's a great point as, as somebody who's I, I very much agree with my co-host james that the this has been absolutely brutal for businesses and as we enter the freeze tomorrow with no real clarification on what that's going to mean for wait staff bartenders i you know any of a thousand different types of jobs, there's a lot of questions I think that still need to be answered. Uh a friend of mine works for Zeke Emanuel, the guy who's who's been really on top of a lot of COVID stuff, had his own show on MSNBC, and is now maybe going to be a part of the Biden administration. Um or the alleged Biden administration. <laughs> still still counting those votes. We'll see we'll see if Michigan Stop turns the vote. Around. Stop the vote. <laughs> um, but I th- he made the exact same point that that you just made and it it's it's not a dichotomous choice between public health and business. But if it is, businesses can come back. Once you die, you die. There is no, we're going to give a stimulus package to a dead person. That's, that is not part of the equation. And at the end of the day, health needs to be paramount we need to get people healthy. We need to get the vaccine out and uh, available to as many individuals as possible. Uh, And I'd be curious from, from where you sit both as a as a medical professional and as a uh, very soon to be legislator what do you think are some of the remedies that you see for certainly for the education gap but for all I mean you know Portland's a food town this is there's a lot I of great know. craft beer there's a lot of restaurants that uh, just aren't going to be there what are some of the things you're hoping you can do legislatively to tackle you know both of those problems
1: Well I really you know I think it's going to be really important to get federal aid For sure. Because I think the state, as you know, we have to balance our budget and it's going to, it's probably going to be difficult to really be able to tide restaurants over until we get COVID under control. But I would like for there to be federal aid for that. I want these restaurants to come back or, you know, and I'm certainly going to try to, you know, support the takeout effort. And I think we should all do the best we can on that. Um, But I think, you know, we need financial support for the restaurants so that they are here when COVID gets under control and then I think I forgot what your next. Well, I think
0: half, I think half of them uh, have already gone out of business. Right, it's, right, yeah, yeah. 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 It's really sad situation down in downtown Portland. Pock
1: Pock. Pock I know. Poc, poc. Poc, crazy, poc. I know. Loc- yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, tasty that was, and
0: Alder Clyde Common. Yeah. I mean,
1: to be honest, even when COVID is pretty much under control, and and you know it's obviously going to be a spectrum. We know that the that the vaccine is not going to you know it's not going to be like voila back to normal. I mean, it's going to. Be a while before we feel comfortable sitting in crowded restaurants, even when maybe we know, you know, scientifically the risks are way lower than they were, you know.
2: I I honestly, I've had this conversation a couple of times with different friends. You know, everybody exasperatedly says, oh man, I can't just wait till things get back to normal. And it's like, what do you think normal is going to look like after this? Uh, James yeah. lives. You live in a condo yeah. right next to Providence Park. You think people are going to go back to Timbers games, be armpit to elbow? You know, I I was all excited. Mm. I got to go see Corn of all bands play <laughs> at uh, at the Moda Center. Uh, maybe two weeks, three. You were there. I was two, there. Three yeah, weeks before yeah. Uh, the you know the shutdown kind of started. When's the next time somebody's going to go to a concert? And I. I mean, I, I don't know what what the answer to that is. I, I think there's, I think you're absolutely right. There's going to be a a massive lag between okay. Statistically, you're in pretty decent shape. It's pretty low risk right now, vis-a-vis coronavirus or any other, you know, seasonal flu or stomach bug, any any of the things that are going around. But I think there's going to be a lot of time before people are comfortable going out in crowds. I think masks are going to be around for years, decades to come. And I, I don't know the way around that. I don't know how we can go back and see corn again. I, I, I'm going to, I'm (laughs) going to disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Bipartisanship. I'm going
0: to disagree a little bit on that and just maybe it's the, Republican groups on Facebook that I'm a member of and don't ever participate in. But it seems like there's a lot right of center, a lot of people who are just itching to get back out there. And it's not just the Tootie Smiths and uh, Mike Neerman's of the world who go on Facebook and say, I'm just going to ignore the order and do what I want. There's There are a lot of people who, the minute it's safe, the minute they are not bound by the freeze or the lockdown or whatever, who are going to go out and and jump on whatever opportunity? It is not going to be the to the level that it was pre-COVID. I think you're right that masks are going to be a part of our life probably forever. I would imagine that yeah. this has changed the culture enough that I think we're going to wear masks from now until until we die when we're out in public, or especially when you're sick,
1: right? Or on an airplane or, or whatever, airplane, you know, like. yeah, taking yeah. the Amtrak, yeah, things like that. Yeah.
0: yeah, but I would say that there is enough interest. In getting back out there That once a vaccine is around And circulating So I mean that's the other thing with a vaccine You don't just need to develop the vaccine You need to <laughs> make it. make yeah. 7 billion uh, doses And then distribute it And I think the Pfizer vaccine That we we're just talking about Which is 90% effective And Moderna And, and well Moderna just, just I don't know much about that one But anyway it needs to be refrigerated Like mi- minus 80 degrees or something So like distributing it Is not a trivial task But I think once it started, once it has, I don't know, propagated enough, I think 50, 60, 70% of the population is going to want, is going to just be jumping to go back into it. It, it, I think that 30 to 40% is probably going to hold off like Dr. Reynolds was talking about. But I hope you're right. I
1: mean, I I hope you're right because I think, you know, that that will bode well for the timbers and the businesses and, you know… um, but it's you know I'm sure you guys have that feeling of watching a movie and like oh they're all hugging <laughs> you know? there's 15 people like crowded around a table yes you every know? time it's, yeah I, I
2: watched it's... a Simpsons episode with my wife at lunch and Mr <laughs> Burns goes grocery shopping and I was like he's not wearing them. and it's like oh that's right this was from 1997 also it's and a, cartoon. He's a cartoon yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> even still it's just like, like oh my goodness how could you be so unsafe we were watching The Queen's Gambit
0: on Netflix right. and. Even that it was like it takes place in the '60s, and uh, we're like, you're not wearing masks, you're too close, you're touching hands, stop what you're doing. Oh, anyway,
2: that's I. This, so there was I. very totally aside. I, Netflix got into some trouble, and they said we're not going to make original content anymore with people smoking because, I'm, yeah, I'm not an advocate for smoking. It's 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 a horrible habit, and it causes all kinds of medical problems, and I, you know all all this kind of stuff. And somebody. Somebody made a joke that they were going to go back and edit cigarettes out of, or no, if, if this was it was a satirical point made in the movie. Thank you for smoking, the hmm. Aaron Eckhart movie, which is I love that movie. Um, like they were going to go back and edit out, you know, Cary Grant smoking a cigarette or something, you know, in nineteen fifty four or whatever. And I, I'd love to see, you know, Netflix go back and like edit <laughs> in masks into like Queens Gambit and House of Cards and something. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so one of the other things you mentioned. Uh, Dr. Reynolds, is the uh, you've been involved in Moms Demand Action and preventing gun violence has been a big issue for you. And this is kind of another thing that I've been thinking about. Whereas I think that left and right can find common ground. I know this is kind of a one of those hot button issues, but I think everybody can agree that gun violence is bad. That people getting shot. Hot take. I, I know. I know. Don't <laughs> quote me on that. But uh, I think everybody thinks that, that gun violence is bad. And so it's really starting from there. You know, I think even the NRA folks can, can agree that gun violence is bad. And then, you know, how do you take that to the next step and say, well, here are the steps that we can, we can go through to reduce gun violence without, you know, infringing on Second Amendment rights and... Yeah, that was... yeah.
1: Well, I think one thing, and again, putting my pediatric hat on, one thing that I've been working on for years is um, safe storage of guns. And I talk about it in the exam room with families. And I've actually traveled around the state talking to healthcare providers about how to talk to their patients about safe gun storage. Uh, one of my friends and, and really kind of a mentor of mine, Paul Kemp, uh, mm-hmm. lost his brother-in-law at the Clackamas Town Center shooting. And Paul is a lifelong gun owner, hunter, grew up in Michigan, lives in Happy Valley now. And he was really, um, shocked and dismayed that the shooter in the Clackamas Town Center shooting, um, grabbed his buddy's AK-47 or AR-15, I can't remember which one. Um, and, and, you know, walked off to the mall and, and shot people. It wasn't this, this person, it wasn't his own gun, it was his buddy's gun sitting out on the, literally on the coffee table. Um, and Paul was a little surprised that there was no, Recourse. That the family had against the owner of the gun for just having it sitting on the coffee table. Now, Paul will tell you, the fam- the the young man whose gun was stolen, who was a friend of the shooter's, is devastated. You know, his mm-hmm. his life has been, you know, altered, um, and, and he's heartbroken by what happened. Um, but in any case, it got Paul thinking about why do we not have say storage laws in Oregon? And um, so he and I have been working together on this topic. Um, I know one thing that um, gun owners will say is like, well, the whole point of having a gun is to protect my family. Family, and if it's locked, I can't access it. But fortunately, there are biometric safes where you can, literally, with a tap of your of your fingerprint, it it opens up. And we certainly all read all too often about the. There was a three year old in Hillsborough about a month ago who um, picked up his some adult's gun in the home mm-hmm. and shot and killed himself. Shot himself in the head and killed himself. So. I will say that that feels like a point we should be able to get around, get, get behind together. But I've had conversations with Republican legislative staff and they just can't seem to go there with me. <laughs> they, they imply that if a, they've implied to me, this is one staffer, that if a child gets his hands on the gun, you know, that implies that, you know, the parent's just a really bad parent, you know, and that we mm. can't, Um, we shouldn't make it a rule that everyone has to lock a gun because one parent is bad and allowed the three year old to get their hand on a gun. And I'm like, I don't quite see them as a bad parent. I see them, you know, they certainly never in a million years thought or wanted their child to get their hand on that gun. So I will tell you, I feel like there should be common ground, but I've had a hard time finding it. And I will admit that maybe I'm not good at really kind of maneuvering to find the shared values to me child health child survivals should be a shared value but we we seem to keep talking past each other and i'm it's it's discouraging sometimes i will say
0: so as someone who has a Pistol in his uh, sock drawer. (laughs) Biometric sock drawer? uh, (laughs) No, not a biometric sock drawer. Um, And it's it is loaded. But I also don't have any kids in my house. Kids never come over. I mean, it's me and my wife and the dog. And you know, until the well, yeah, (laughs) until the dog learns how to open my sock drawer, um, we're probably going to be okay. But um, I've had some guns groups call me uh, during when I was uh, a candidate asking about that my stance on safe storage. I feel like that's kind of the next step that the legislature is going to go to your point. Um, And it it just kind of, as someone who supports the second amendment, it does just kind of rub me the wrong way. And I've been trying to figure out why it rubs me the wrong way. And I don't know that it's really come up with a, a, I've come up with a good solution or or a good reason. And this is just kind of my, my process of like, yeah, I can absolutely see the benefit of Safe storage laws requiring guns to be locked up. Get the biometric thing. Um,
2: so i I'd, I'd like to actually know your opinion on that because I would wager part of the reason it might bother you so much is that you have had, I would guess, extensive arms training. You were a little bit. You were a soldier. You defended our country uh, wonderfully. Thanks. Oh, thanks thank for you. that, by yes, the way. Thank you, was last week. Big ups. Um, but you, you know your way around a gun. You know how to handle it safely. You know how to load and unload and take apart and clean and, I, and all these wonderful things. And for me, that's... I, I very much believe in, I believe in the second amendment. I believe any red blooded American who wants to own a gun should be able to do so. And I, as I mentioned before we started recording, I lived in Texas for 10 years. They used to drive around with loaded guns on racks on the back of their trucks and, you know, you'd stop and get gas. Anybody could go and take it if you want. That's obviously not something that I would advocate for, or try to return to, but I think that any person can just walk up and get a gun and after passing a background check and it's as simple as I hand you money and you hand me a gun. I would, I personally would love to see guns again be available to everybody, be legal for everybody who wants one, but I'd love to see it come with a mandatory Safety class, a mandatory training regimen, a, a continual yearly, you know, every five years, you gotta go get your driver's license changed. Every five years, you'd go and have like, let's make sure you're still mentally all there and can still manage a gun. So in order to get a concealed carry license, you do have to
0: take a class. Or I, I think I got to waive it because I was spent eight years in the army and like, add to your point, know my way around a gun. I think that's reasonable. I think that where you run into is more of a legal, uh, Issue because it is the Second Amendment. I mean, people will compare gun laws to driving and say, "Well, you need a license to drive. Do you need a license to own a gun?" It's like, well, driving isn't protected by the Bill of Rights, and so it's a it's a little bit a little bit different. I don't. Know, I'm still making up my mind on this. I guess is is really kind of the the thing. I I see the need for reducing gun violence. I, like I said, I think we can all agree that gun violence is bad, but it's every time somebody proposes something, it just kind of, my gut reaction is that I I push against it. And I've been really kind of working through that in my own mind of why am I pushing against it? And I don't know, I don't, I don't have an answer.
1: Yeah, no, well, and I appreciate that. And I think that's, (laughs) and I think that is the, um, you know, the first response of people. and Mm -hmm. And I, and I kind of understand it, you know, and then, you know, I appreciate that you're kind of trying to look inward and analyze why you have such a reaction to it. One other thing that I've been working on and somewhat involved in, you know, 80% of the gun deaths in Oregon are suicides. 80%. So much higher than the national average, which is about 60%, which is still really high. Um, and, uh, and it tends to be more in rural parts of the state. And it tends to be, you know, middle-aged white men. And so there has been tremendous effort in – those parts of the state by, especially by physician groups and by psychologists to really have, you know, direct conversations when people, and I think I would say, especially middle-aged men are in crisis and encourage them to, you know, to really kind of talk about the issue that when you're in crisis and you have access to a gun, the chance of suicide goes up. There's just no question. There's a link, and we've really been trying to find ways for these people to have their buddy hold the gun or have a have a locker at the police department. And those are really the conversations that I think are really really important.
2: And I think that's something that uh, that our party, th- that the Republican Party, has woefully fallen short of the mark on. I, there is a massive mental health crisis in this country, and I uh, I would not insinuate that gun death statistics are inflated or skewed or anything, but I I, you, I mean, you just said the, the vast majority of them are deaths by suicide. And if that's something that can be tackled, if that's something that can be addressed, and I, we had one of our very first episodes, we had Doctor Satya Giri was running for Marion County Council or something, the Salem uh, City Council, something like that. School board, school board, it was a school board, yeah. yeah, Salem, but Salem School Board. But he, as a Republican, he was talking about what it's like to deal with mental health crises and what it's like to deal with suicide, and and try to talk about it a, a, as a male and as a Republican, and it's just it's so difficult to to even bring this up and have a conversation when so many people. Right, left, old, young, black, white, everywhere, every across any spectrum you want to measure are struggling in so many ways that are visible and not visible. And obviously, when somebody dies by suicide, it is too late to do anything about it. And we need to – this is something that happens after pretty much every major shooting is Marco Rubio or somebody gets up and says, you know, it's not anything any question about the laws, about the guns. We just need to fund mental health care better. It's like, well, then go do it. Like mm. that's, this needs to happen yesterday. What are we waiting for?
0: This is one of my criticisms of, uh, sorry, the Democratic Party is they talk a lot about help funding mental health. And then you look downtown and you see homelessness everywhere. It's like, well, go do it. You know, you want to talk about it. sorry. Getting off topic. I'll no, throw but, it in there. But, but um, yeah. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, uh, kind of adding on to the suicide thing, and I'm sure this is probably well known, but most people who attempt suicide end up regretting it later. I mean, obviously who are not successful, they end up regretting it and they end up being in a better place. And so it just kind of goes to show that if you take away the means to commit suicide, most people will get through that period of their, of their lives, whether it's days or weeks and come out the other end and be glad that they, that they didn't do it. And so removing the means, uh, it could be an effective way to reduce suicide in general.
1: Absolutely. It's been, it's been proven over and over again. Yes. Yeah. No, thank you for that. Yeah. yeah.
2: So uh, I will be curious to ask, I, um, I had always thought of, of gun violence as, as a national issue that that is not Oregon centric. I, obviously it does affect far, far, far too many Oregonians and it, I'm very encouraged that that's something that, you know, you're going to go try to fight for and change in the in the legislature. Uh, Are there any Oregon specific topics that that have, you know, just been bugging at you now that you're a legislator, you have the chance to go and and change?
1: Do you mean on gun violence prevention or or anything?
2: Anything. I I mean, I know, you know, or we're. Last in the nation in high school graduation, you know, say, so yeah, lot I
1: was, I was like going to say, I mean, what, what James brought up earlier is our achievement gap. You know, okay. I work mm-hmm. in, I'm a pediatrician in Washington County and I speak Spanish. So I, right, yeah. I see quite a few, <laughs> <laughs> I see quite a few, um, Latino families who've obviously been disproportionately affected by COVID. They've been, and they've been really disproportionately affected by the, the schooling at home. And, um, and, you know, we probably all know West Portland families who have their pods, but they hired the, the, the kindergarten teacher from last year to teach the four kids. And I'm seeing my, um, uh, my, my Latinx families that the mom's going off to her job at the restaurant. Well, maybe not for much longer. And, you know, the kids are at home trying to fend for themselves and it's just, I was worried about the achievement gap a year ago, and I'm really, really concerned now. So, um, and I think this goes to issues around equity. I think we know those, you know, and even going upstream to the early childhood, you know, the more we can support families and kids in those first few years, they show up on kindergarten as ready as they can be. And that just, I just feel like that sets them on a better path. So that's really what is kind of driving me. It drove me to run for office, and it's only become more stark.
0: I wish it was even it was talked about more. Mm-hmm. The achievement gap and the effect that this pandemic is having on the achievement gap. Because you're you're gonna have kids that never recover, I think. Right. I feel no, like I'm they're...
1: very, very worried. Yes. And I think we should have had summer school. You know, I mean I am just really, really worried.
0: Yeah, I I am too. And I yeah. feel like every time we get this freeze, we have a 30-minute press conference of Governor Brown talking about how we need to stay home and save lives, and that just never addresses all of the fallout and all of the other unintended consequences of, of this decision. I I wish she would just like acknowledge, Hey, this is going to hurt for your business where this is going to widen the achievement gap, all of the other things. I, I just acknowledge it. I, anyway,
2: so I, I, I will say love Democrats are very happy to have you on the podcast. <laughs> I'm not trying to, not trying to throw flames here. Although our listeners kind of wish we would do that more, but sorry. Sorry. Some of them. I, I wonder if Donald Trump had been, Had been a good president and had been responsible and intelligent and had really come out and... Attacked coronavirus from the get go and really pushed for mask mandates, really pushed for shutdowns, really pushed for freezes. I, I feel like that that would have been the attack from the left is he is going after our, our minority communities, our single parent communities, our impoverished communities because of how much, how disproportionately affecting this will be of people of the, of, the, of those ilks on the achievement gap. And I mean, I, I gotta tell you, my wife's a fourth grade teacher in Selwood in a reasonably affluent community. I have heard the word pod more times in the last four months <laughs> since she started school than I have in the preceding 32 years of my life. But that's because she teaches in Selwood where parents have the resources to be able to go and do that. And for a lot of other schools right here, even in PPS, let alone you know a, a ton of other less well-off, less affluent parts of the state that they, they the parents don't have that. The parents don't have the time or the financial resources to to put towards something like that. And it's, it's going to be a massive kick in the pants.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very scary. And I think, I think you're right. There are going to be kids who do not recover from this and whose life trajectory are altered.
0: I will say just my experience, very limited experience running for office is that you cannot do like whatever you do, you're going to get flack from the other side. And I think that as an elected leader, you just kind of have to do what you feel is right, and let the <laughs> let the criticism come because it's going to come whether you do or criticism is going to come whether you don't. So, uh, I mean, I don't know. That's how I would not deal with. This podcast, yeah. though. Well, and right. I think
1: that you know, in terms of the school stuff, I think we have in Oregon had a little bit of the benefit of the 56 million kids around the country who are in school and really learning about what seems to be working and not working in terms of slowing transmission. Like, the smaller class sizes seem to make the biggest difference. Um, you know that was something we weren't exactly sure going in, just in terms of um, looking at the data at this point. So I think you know I think we have a lot to learn from other states that have gone back into classrooms. I think we can't. I mean, early on people like kids don't get COVID, kids don't <laughs> spread COVID. We know that's not true, but we do know that classrooms tend not to be tend not to be um, super spreader events. If it's done right with – and kids are fine at wearing masks. This Mm. whole thing like kids won't wear masks. I bet, I bet you know, your wife's fourth graders are probably pretty good at wearing masks when the time comes. I know they're remote right now. I mean, you know, I mean I have kids in my exam room. Granted, it's for 15 or 20 minutes at a stretch. And they're fine with masks. They're cute. They're funny, the masks. So anyway, I think we sell our kids short by saying they're not going to wear masks.
2: I'm wearing Probably the best design mask right now. Oh it's an Oregon gosh. State Beaver. So I that's. I, gonna, I hope we see a lot of a lot of kids wearing Beaver masks. Oh my I know there's some. Uh, you know, D3 school. Have you guys Eugene won a game yet? To- have, you, uh, <laughs> have you guys won a game yet? I don't. I don't think. You- uh, yeah, but for
0: the refs, we would have beat the Huskies on Saturday. <laughs> mm, you don't even have Nickel State to play this year. So how are you gonna? How are you gonna win hey, a game? That's all right. uh, Anyway, so we're about out of time. Uh, Doctor, Reynolds, one of the things we like to do at the when we end our podcast is ask our guests uh, who their favorite Republican is. And so as a Democrat. We usually give you all a bit of a pass, and so if you want to name your favorite uh, politician, some leader that you that you admire, I was wondering if you could.
1: You know, I think I think the 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 person who keeps coming to mind to me this fall is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm. I think, um, like so many people, I I remember the where I was um, uh, when I heard that she died. I remember. Thinking like, wow, we can't even just mourn her properly, and just you know, be here in a moment with our feelings about losing such a great jurist, such a great champion for women's rights. We're already scheming about what does this mean for women's rights, what does this mean for LGBTQ, what does this mean for the ACA. Um, but I just, you know, she was obviously an inspiration to so many people. So I would say, even though. She probably, you know, is was in a nonpartisan role. We know that she was a Democrat and Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's pretty heartbreaking about who took her seat on the Supreme Court.
0: Got it. Well, thank you again so much for coming on on the show and inviting us over and letting us uh, come and talk to you for a little bit.
1: Thank you for having me. This is really this is great. Good. Good. Glad to
0: have you. Um, Listeners, we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlosky. The show today is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors of Portland, serving the greater Portland metro area for all your garage door installation and repair needs. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at james at jamesaball.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.